All right, y'all, it's Valley of Dreams, America's premier music, technology, and lifestyle podcast. I am Daniel, joined here, as always, by Phil. Phil, how on earth are you doing today? I'm great. I start every show by talking about something I'm either currently eating or mm. just ate. Okay. And I'm going to tell you what. Okay. I am addicted to this great, this great new product called O-Loves. O-Loves? They're a little sack of lemon and rosemary olives. Okay. It's like just eating like a little... It's like a little uh, fruit fruit snack size, but instead now, of being fruit snacks on the inside, they're olives. So it's packaging as if they were sugary, disgusting, late 90s fruit snacks, but inside are delicious olives. That's exactly right. And <laughs> really, on the outside of the bag, it says 50 million bags enjoyed worldwide. So maybe I'm a little bit off when I say uh, there's this new thing. <laughs> it might not be new, <laughs> new to me. This seems like a really high number. So why aren't you just, I don't know how else people buy olives. It seems like buying them in the jar all salted up may not be the best approach uh, sodium intake wise. But I don't, what's a normal way that people purchase and ingest olives? Martinis. <laughs> they just come, they come brined and then okay. they're brined and then they're soaked in alcohol. <laughs> okay, yeah, so I don't know. The, yeah, don't yeah. Know. Do you feel like these are good for you? Uh, I mean, it is what are so they accomplishing like, for you, Phil? Why are you drinking on these olives? Eating? Well, I think because it's a very easy, just grab this little bag <laughs> while I'm walking out the door. Okay. And... Normally, something that small on such a bag like that would be a sweet, and mm, mm-hmm. I'm very interested in a savory. Ah. And if I can get away from a savory, okay, uh, carb-related thing, and I can just go straight to whatever mm. an olive is, vegetable, uh-huh. I'm on board. Fruit, maybe I don't know. Um, are you down on carbs? Uh, just I'm trying to regulate insulin and like how mm-hmm. my uh, my mood right, gets affected right. by I hear that like, sweet overload. So if I can go if I can go salty, <laughs> I uh, it's less dramatic because you know I'm old. Yeah, we're getting up there. Any type of food that I eat is going to have major impact on my mood because <laughs> I can no longer break it down. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, you can roll with some whole grains, carb wise. <laughs> I know we got the sorghum, big sorghum. I mean, I hate to say it, but I have to admit that the first thing that came to my mind was the possibility of ingesting more Onyx sorghum products. Right, right. BT Dub, the (laughs) BT Dub, um, big sorghum does have its own podcast. Oh yeah, is sponsored. (laughs) That see, if we could get on board. With big sorghum, we'll, yeah, they, we'll look into it. They have a, a seed company that sponsors the you know National Sorghum Growers podcast, which okay. sounded pretty good. The audio, I'd like to have them come uh, visit with us here on the Valley of Dreams. Their audio quality, not what it might be, to be honest with you. 
Dang. All right. Well, yeah, yeah I think we could show him a thing or two. Yeah. So if Sorghum already has a dedicated podcast, <laughs> where maybe we could get into like sugar beets. Uh-huh. I know I've said that I'm off sugar, but like I'd be interested in a dedicated sugar beets podcast. Maybe we could sweep the, the bad the lands. Yeah. <clears throat> I can't imagine getting into sugar beets, to be honest with you. it's. I think that's not going to happen for me. Although I really never knew that my love of sorghum would emerge this late in life either. So, Yeah. Well, how are you doing? Man, uh, I am doing fantastic, Phil. I am, as we mentioned, off that sorghum. I have had some onyx sorghum. Uh, I have ingested some grapes. I went on a nice little walk. I'm throwing back some coffee right now. And more importantly, I have the pleasure of being here with you, Phil, and with our massive, growing, uh, I was going to say viewer, user base here on the Valley of Dreams. So anytime that I'm doing VOD, I'm feeling like a million bucks. A lot of people, you know, when they talk about VOD, there are various roads that they go down. Uh, various issues that they want to want to raise. One thing that you're always going to hear when people talk about Valley of Dreams is that the quick draw lightning round is the premier segment. Yeah, it's fun to hear Phil talk about what snacks he's been eating. Yeah, it's fun to hear Daniel talk about how delicious sorghum is and the importance of whole grains. But when people think Valley of Dreams, when they think music, when they think tech, when they think lifestyle, more often than not, they are thinking about the quick draw segment. Today on the quick draw segment, issue number one, where are we at with contemporary movies slash are there any movie theaters anymore? Phil. Well, I recently saw... I think it's called Last Night in Soho. It is by the baby driver and Spark Brothers uh, person. Not my. What is Spark Brothers? I've heard of Baby Driver. That was a Kevin Spacey vehicle, if I recall correctly. (laughs) Right. Um, Sparks Brothers is about. Hate that name. uh, Yeah. Um, It's about just the band. yeah, just it's about. Oh, there's a band called Sparks Brothers. Essentially, yeah. Um, <laughs> it came out in 2021. Okay. <laughs> um, it's about Ron and Russell, uh, and they are members of the pop and rock duo Sparks. Oh, and okay. it came out 2021 this year, and okay. um, Edgar Wright is the the director. And but okay. last night in Soho also just came out. Okay, and it is kind of a horror thriller, or maybe not horror is probably the wrong word. Psychological mm. horror. Okay, um, but it has some cool ideas, but not my cup of tea. Seemed like uh, the the Hollywood industry, the movie industry, still getting its feet right back under them about like what people want to check out. And so maybe I'm just so disconnected now from what people yeah, want. That, yeah. Um, I think more likely you're disconnected from pop culture. Yeah. But I did see, well, I, I saw most of the new Dune movie and I saw that in the theater too. Wow. And I thought it was pretty good. 
I uh, unfortunately I went to a showing that started at 10 p.m. and yeah. because of my advanced age, I <laughs> I, uh, I, I fell asleep <laughs> like my mom. I fell asleep like 20 minutes before it was over, and oh. the person I saw it with, yep, huh. uh, the person I saw it with had yeah. to rouse me. <laughs> once the film was over you're a newbie there right i the parts that i was uh conscious for were pretty good it's like one of those movies where if you were to stop it at any point and just take a still or a screenshot of yeah. what was on the screen it was it entertaining like, it was be like oh that is that's an artistic achievement right there so i thought it was pretty good but okay i'm also like i mentioned just pain fabulously old and shouldn't dune. be have no business watching movies after 10 p.m is dune this is a book that's very popular with 14 year olds is that dune yeah yep okay that's right you're nailing it 14 okay. year olds love it and okay. but 14 year olds have loved it for forever for a long time this is a perennial classic that's right and some say mm. it's up there as like one of the you know, foundational bits of sci-fi. And, okay. Which is, okay. I could, I can get on board with that, but yeah, I think um, it was cool. I got to see it in the theater, which is great. And both times I, both theaters I went to yeah. were basically empty. So yeah. I felt yeah, I don't, comfortable. Yeah. It doesn't seem there. like people go and watch films anymore. Yeah. What I are you checking out? Well, I don't think anything. Um, uh-huh. I was kind of getting more into the, oh, we can go to the movie theater and that'll be fun thing before the pandemic. Um, but to be honest with you, the movie theater that we like to go to was uh, an Alamo draft house in the Cedars here in yep. Dallas. And uh, it's I believe it's closed. I believe that they closed during the pandemic and that they have not yet reopens and I'm not that interested in exploring different movie theaters to go to. Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't, I don't know, man. It's not really resonating with me right now. I, mean, and I, also, like, I just don't know what's out, you know, like you, I, I've never really known you to want to see a ton of movies in the theater. Like, yeah, you've seen it's a lot not of stuff, but it's like, eh, it's not really my thing. It's got to be yeah. really special for you to see it in the theater. I mean, you know, they did those Star Wars reissues, right? Yeah. In the late 90s. I was happy to go see that. Yeah. Um, I'm sure I've seen some films since then. I saw Django Unchained twice in the theater. Whoa. Um, I saw the Lincoln film in the theater. Yep. Um, Which I was, would, boy. That was great. Pretty good. I would have seen Once a Time in Hollywood in the theater. You know, I would see any Tarantino film in the theater, but I, I don't know. That just didn't happen for whatever yep. reason. So I couldn't tell you, <clears throat> to be honest with you, the last film that I saw, I don't anticipate watching any films anytime soon. Uh, I feel like contemporary era, the world is more into these really high quality limited series that are produced and shown on HBO max. To me, that's a little bit yep. more appealing than a movie maybe because i don't have to leave my house um bonus 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 material okay so 
We answered that question. We are not favorable towards contemporary movies with the exception of Dune, which is possibly the first, fantastic. The first two hour, two and a half hours of Dune. First two and a half hours of Dune. There are movie theaters. We don't know exactly where they are, what they do, but Phil has been to a few of them. Issue number two on the Quick Draw segment, Taylor Swift Swizzy. Taylor Swift is re-recording her, I don't know if it's her entire catalog, but much of her catalog to critical acclaim. Apparently, Taylor does not own many of the early masters of her recordings, and she has decided to respond to this by completely re-recording these albums in a, a way that I understand to be largely comparable to the original versions. Fascinatingly, these albums have been... Uh, they've been met with critical acclaim. So, you know, go read uh, your slates, your pitchforks. Rolling Stone has a paywall. I'll find out next one month um, what Rolling Stone thinks of all of this. And they're going to tell you that this is a really great retrospective of Taylor's career. Some of the uh, fascinating issues involving whether or not Jake Gyllenhaal stole Taylor's scarf have reemerged. I am fascinated by this in part because the first thing that came to mind as I heard about her re-recording all of these albums was the proliferation of re-recordings of classic country songs by the same artists, except for they sound worse. So mm. you can find re-recordings of many Johnny Cash songs. You can find re-recordings of many Merle Haggard songs. And the list probably goes on and on. And I never put a lot of thought into why it was that there were so many re-recordings of these songs. And I don't know whether this had to do with uh, gaining control of masters or switches in what record company these guys were working for. Um, but I find this whole chain of events to be completely fascinating. And I love that we're now in a scenario where Taylor Swift's genius, which maybe was less understood a decade ago than it is now, is being just fully recognized and embraced by the world. So quick draw question, Phil, where are you at with Taylor Swift re-recording her critical, excuse me, her catalog to critical acclaim. I think it's really great. I really, I think it's a awesome, awesome move. I also very, um, I like the idea of somebody being able to revisit something that yeah. they've done with yeah. a new perspective. Yes. But then still maintain like, they're still the same songs. This yeah. doesn't really sound all that inspired, but um, I mean, she's, I don't know how long ago Red came out. Maybe like 2012. Yeah, so, so almost a decade. Ten years again. ago. So you know she's had ten years to you know perfect that performance even mm -hmm. more than it was already captured the first time. So I think that's really cool. Also, I am I'm I'm a huge fan of the idea of these artists being able to have more control over their yeah. legacy. Yeah, yeah, and being able to own your masters or own a version <laughs> of your music. 
seems really cool. Well, talk about power. She can just tell people no longer listen to the other version of this song. Listen to this version that I fully own. That is an amazing thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I listened to the, I'm pretty sure it was the fearless album Mm -hmm, Taylor's mm -hmm, version. mm -hmm. And I mean, it still hits, which is yeah. like, it's yeah. so cool. It's like, oh yeah, yeah. she doesn't really, lo- it sounds different, but it's still fearless. Yeah. So it's yeah. like, oh, well, which version do I want? I just might as well get the one that the artist actually has blessed as yeah. being, this is the new legit version. Yeah. I need to go back and redo my entire catalog. Although I guess I own all of my masters for better or for worse. So it sounds like we're supporters. Yeah, I don't know. Is anybody? I didn't um, get too into the maybe the alternative, which is like people think it's a waste mm-hmm. of time. Or well, yeah. I mean, you could imagine there being some sort of backlash. People saying this is just a money grab, you know. But I mean, I think Taylor, as an artist, the fact that she's a businesswoman has always been part of her persona. Right. Um, yeah. But I, you know, you could, yeah. I mean, I, you could imagine this being positioned as a money grab. You can imagine people uh, upon revisiting these albums. These are obviously, um, they're basically classic albums at this point, but you could imagine people saying, you know, fearless red, they really weren't as good as we thought they were at the time. Um, you know, I, th- I feel like you can imagine some sort of counter narrative emerging, but I think that this plays really well with her, uh, her persona. And yeah. it's also just something that, I mean, geez, Louise, who doesn't want her to have control over her catalog? We want everyone to have control over their own everything. Right. Yep. I, I, in a very simple way. Yes. That yeah. sounds awesome. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. A super competent, capable artist that made a bunch of awesome stuff. Yeah. Hey, yeah. You want to, you want to kind of take it to the, the, take it to the system and be like, Hey, I re-recorded them. Yeah. It's cool to revisit it also because I'm not sure that I remembered this song about, you know, allegedly about a famous actor who's the brother of Maggie Gyllenhaal. Yep. Um, which now is at in a 10 minute long version. And I listened to it earlier today to prep for this episode. And it is a straight banger. And the use of the scarf uh, sort of symbolism in the song is just absolutely powerful and beautiful. So shout out to Taylor Swift. I maybe we'll have her on sometime. I don't know. We'll we'll talk to her about it. Issue number yeah, three on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'll text her. Issue number three on the quick draw segment. Last week on the program, Phil introduced the concept of the Aura Ring, not a dedicated contraceptive device, but rather some sort of ring that you wear on your finger. It tells you things about the world. I reflected a little bit after our episode last week, read a little bit about the Aura Ring, also read a little bit about the metaverse. Um, and I learned after the that, episode, Perfect. yeah, at post post episode, which is what we want people to do. We want people to be so engaged that they go do follow up <laughs> reading and research, <laughs> <laughs> discuss yeah. first, learn afterwards. Right. 
Sorry so, to interrupt. Can yeah, you? no, you Phil, you interrupt me anytime that you but, want, buddy. Yeah. Issue number three, the Aura Ring 3 is about to drop or has dropped, or so I read in a headline on Wired. The new Aura can do blood ox levels, which is obviously really important given the pandemic. I myself own a little blood ox reader. It's pretty cool. Um, Aura is also moving to a subscription model. So $6 per month moving forward. I wanted to hear where Phil stands on this issue as a proponent of the Aura Ring. Ordered mine already. (laughs) I'm locked in to lifetime subscription. I am ready to get my sizing kit. There's a sizing kit? Yep, because uh, no fingers... Uh, we don't want there to be a misfit or okay. uh, a poor connection between <laughs> the ring and the finger. So I've got my sizing kit coming in the mail. That feels like great branding to me. You have to have a sizing kit. Yeah. So, I mean, we're not sponsored by Aura, uh-uh. but I got my ring coming. I'm going to be a lifetime member because if you order now, they'll, they'll give you a lifetime <laughs> membership. Wait, so, what? What is what's the meaning of that lifetime membership? You know, I don't know too much about it. I, it's probably has something to do. I haven't really read about it. It's just like a subscription. I don't even know what this means. But um, you can imagine that they're probably going to have like premium things for members. Like, uh-huh. there's 400 people in your vicinity that are all stressed out right now. <laughs> <laughs> like. Blood oxygen oxygen's really low in your city right now. Dang. Everyone who works for you is tripping right now because of yeah. your behavior. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't look into it that much, but I just – that was not part of the reason why I, I re-upped to get, yeah, yeah. go from Model 2 to Model 3. I just – I want the blood ox and uh-huh. um, – I like the idea of staying current with my wearable tech. <laughs> <laughs> Once you know, you know, your blood ox situation, yeah. it's kind of fun to keep up with it, to yeah. be honest with you. And it's one of those things where personally, for whatever reason, it's made me feel like I'm really healthy or something. Yeah. To know, despite, you know, I'm like, yeah. wow, my blood ox is so good. Yeah. I'm right there with you. As soon as, I mean, I could feel like, I could feel terrible, but if my yeah. R ring tells me I'm ready, because that's like <laughs> one of its scores, I think just mentally I'm like, oh, I think Wait, I one might of its be scores ready. is you're ready. If readiness, yeah, your readiness score. <laughs> and if you have a machine telling you you're ready, yeah, if you're not ready, that's powerful. You might, you might believe it. You're like, oh man, I must yeah. be ready. Machine beats human any day of the week. Yeah, amen. Amen. All right. So to wrap up the quick draw segment, films, they exist. Phil has seen some of them. Taylor Swift, killing it. Aura, we are not sponsored by Aura, but go out and get Gen 3. Phil already did it. You are listening, of course, to Valley of Dreams. I'm Daniel, joined here as always by Phil. We both both eaten the proper amounts of food today. And so it is time for us here on America's premier 
music, technology, and lifestyle podcast to address the issue of music. In particular, to address the ongoing Paul McCartney renaissance. I am going to date this to approximately two years ago when Paul McCartney appeared on the late, late show's carpool karaoke segments. Mm. He got in the car with uh, James Corden, I believe is the guy's name. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. They get in the car. They're in Liverpool. They're driving around singing Beatles songs, singing Paul solo songs. Ultimately, they set up in a pub and McCartney plays a show for the people of Liverpool. They go back to McCartney's old neighborhood. They go to his home, his old home, uh, the house he grew up in, on and on and on. It is an absolutely beautiful experience to watch this. Most of you have probably um, already watched this. And, you know, it's the type of thing that I think reinvigorated interest in McCartney probably part of a uh, ongoing campaign. I think it's been argued on McCartney's part to make sure that he gets a strong say in how his history and the history of the Beatles is told moving forward. Uh, Recently, you know, there's been a lot of McCartney coverage in the New Yorker. There was a long article about McCartney. There was a first person account of the writing of Eleanor Rigby. There was a beautiful, stirring review of McCartney 3, which was a fantastic album. We're moving into the release of the Beatles' Get Back documentary, three-part series, uh, directed by Peter Jackson, using archival footage uh, from the recording of Get Back, also known as Let It Be. We are being bombarded with McCartney materials right now. It could arguably called be called the McCartney Renaissance. I, uh, prompted, of course, by Phil, am hoping that we can discuss this moment here on the program. Phil, why don't you walk us through your experiences of the McCartney Renaissance? Renaissance. I'd be happy to. So there's a great article, Mm. I think, Mm. from the Daily Beast. I don't know if y'all read the Daily Beast, Mm. but uh, sometimes it's got some good stuff in it. And Mm. it is going in on this concept that maybe Paul was the brainy beetle all along. And I think just the idea that in 2021, we can still be having (laughs) this argument and someone will write – Eh, maybe 2,000 words yeah, yeah. arguing that not only it's clear now that yeah. Paul is the, is the jam mm-hmm. in basically all regards of music making, but uh-huh. that maybe Paul is so influential in rethinking Paul constantly, maybe we should also rethink Ringo. And there is a very interesting line in here, which I just, you know, I will talk about Paul, but um, Ringo Starr, when the man was a master technician on his instrument, and there were times in the Beatles seven year run, as with their glorious leave taking Abbey Road, when Starr invinced that he might have been their most gifted instrumentalist. 
And that's with Paul McCartney as a James Jamerson level bassist. Yeah. So I think that's really cool. I like just that there can exist now um, the argument that maybe Ringo is the most gifted instrumental <laughs> instrument. I mean, you know, this is it is amazing how frequently these debates can occur and how much conversation about this topic can happen over the course of world history. But number one, I think it goes without saying that Ringo Starr is a fantastic drummer. He was being judged very weirdly against, uh, you know, your, uh, uh, your John Bonhams and your, uh, um, geez, your Keith Moons, right, was kind of the the vibe um, that people were using to sort of negatively portray Ringo's drumming. But this is a guy who was always on tempo, always made the songs sound better than they otherwise would have sounded, and never gets in the way of the other instruments in the band. You could say the th same thing for Paul McCartney and his bass playing. Have you been watching the Rick Rubin thing on Hulu? Oh yeah. Yeah. I've seen a couple episodes. I mean, so there's only like a handful. Every time they isolate one of McCartney's bass tracks, you can't believe that that is what the bass track for that song sounds like. And as Rick Rubin points out more often than not, <clears throat> McCartney is making decisions that other bass players would not have made. I think the same thing can be said of Ringo Starr. There's a lot of overplaying that he does not engage in. Uh, he's famous, of course, for his space fills. The Beatles would not sound the same if they did not have these boom, 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 fills that Ringo uh, was so into doing. So it's it's always struck me as really weird uh, to act like Ringo, of all people, was an interchangeable part because no one in the Beatles felt that way. They actually all kind of viewed him as like the cooler guy who they got to hang out with. He was mm. somewhat more famous than them locally before the Beatles took off as a member of Rory Storm in the Hurricanes. Uh, so, yeah, that... That's always struck me as weird. <clears throat> the McCartney stuff has always seemed less weird to me because McCartney, you know, Ringo, I think, is unfairly being compared to drummers in other bands that were, frankly, not as good as bands. And I'm saying, you know, The Who, Led Zeppelin. Those are bands that are kind of famous for having these big, extravagant uh, mm -hmm. drummers, right? And Ringo wasn't that. And geez Louise, it make, makes the Beatles that much better of a band. It'd be so weird if they had this dominant drummer um, mm. as part of the band. Where was it? on earth was I going with this? Um, ah, so he's being compared, I think, unfairly with other bands, essentially, which were worse. Um, whereas McCartney is being compared constantly to Lennon. And Lennon's image is it goes without saying so much cooler than Paul McCartney's image right. um, that he's always going to lose on that front. Right. Um, yep. And, you know, as this article suggests, Lennon has typically been viewed as the better lyricist mm -hmm. where McCartney has typically been, been viewed as the guy who is better at melody. And it's always been easy to take down Paul by saying, you know, this stuff comes easy to him. 
This is a guy who's about as talented as any musician. This is going to sound dramatic, but he's about as talented as any musician who's ever walked the face of the planet, um, both in terms of his musicality and in terms of his raw skill, uh, singing wise and creativity, I would argue, on the bass. Um, so yeah, stuff came fairly easy to him. And it may be that a consequence of that is that there are some Paul McCartney songs that are a little bit goofball, right? <laughs> right. <clears throat> I don't think anyone's going to deny that. Um, but I do think that we are 40, 50 years after the fact, and we can be a little bit more charitable towards these songs or so I thought until yesterday when I heard the song Silly Love Songs by Paul McCartney, <laughs> I was really in this place of, oh man, McCartney is so cool. And then I just heard that Silly Love Songs song. Oh, Do you know no. that song? From? You'd think that people would have had enough of silly love songs. And I was like, you know what? Maybe everyone is right about McCartney. And there's just too much goofball material in here. But you know, the reality is that's not how I feel. Um, I saw McCartney live in concert one time, thanks to my mother, and it was unbelievable. So I'm a huge supporter of the McCartney renaissance. And I do think that he he deserves to try to make some claims about where he stands in history. And he, you know, he has the right to a, uh, a revisionist claim on the Beatles, which uh, was partially taken away from him as a consequence of the you know, martyrdom of John Lennon. So those are my thoughts on the Renaissance. Yeah. So like the lyrics thing is pretty interesting where it's like the argument I suppose is, or the thing to think about is do McCartney lyrics, uh, are they just like part of Paul's musicality? And it seems like, that seems like to be a pretty obvious consensus is where uh-huh. this is like these lyrics are so part of the musical idea that mm-hmm. they are basically one and the same. Whereas maybe with other folks like, Oh, these lyrics throw the music away, just focus on the lyrics. And right. that is the big enough or the bigger or like the main message that's happening. Right. So people like might say, yeah. yeah, people might say, oh, here's a book of Bob Dylan lyrics and they stand alone right. as poetry. The reality is this is all part of music, right? And lyrics to songs, you know, I would argue, should not stand alone. I think there's something um, maybe a little problematic with them if they do. I think even for a Leonard Cohen or a Bob Dylan, it just goes without saying that the music is part of what's going on. Yeah. Well, I'm all for it. I think the more stuff they can dig out, just mm-hmm. along the same lines as like the the Taylor Swift stuff, it's just like yeah. people, I want more content from the <laughs> artists I care about. Yeah, and yeah. If there can be new, you know, ways to think about yeah. old things, and then there mm-hmm. are even like old things that were never released that yep. can contribute to like the creative work of somebody, give it to me. I'm there with you. I'm there with you, Phil. And with our listening and viewing audience, you all, of course, are listening to Valley 
of dreams. I'm Daniel, joined here as always by Phil. Listen, we talk lifestyle, we talk music, but we also tech. <laughs> we also talk tech. That's right. We talk tech here on Valley of Dreams. Issue for this week in the technology segment, Zillow and iBuyers. I have not been following this story very closely. I have not done any research for this segment. My understanding is that there are a bunch of organizations out there known as iBuyers. Open Door would be an example of this. They're basically large-scale internet purchasers of homes. They buy a house uh, at the lowest price possible. They try to very quickly flip the house using economies of scale. They've got a you know, bunch of people who they're already working with, contractors, etc., and then try to resell the house as swiftly as possible. <clears throat> Zillow, which is known basically for uh, being a place where you go and look at houses or a place where you find out how much your house is allegedly worth, said to itself, okay, we've got this Zestimate function, this estimate of what a home is worth. We can use this Zestimate to very accurately price homes. And perhaps, and this is apparently where they uh, completely drop the ball, to predict future prices. I am somewhat fascinated by this because this seems like, from my perspective, at least the approach that Zillow took, to be an unnecessary combination of a tech company and a very risky, low-margin business flipping houses. I generally find this stuff really fascinating. You know, I talk to Open Door on a bi-monthly basis to find out how much they're willing to offer to purchase my home for me. Um, I love seeing, <coughs> excuse me, uh, homes that have recently been purchased by these weird uh, people who are flipping them and observing their developments over time. Uh, Phil, where are you at on the Zillow and iBuyers issue? It is, I, to me, this whole thing is out of control. I get constant phone, mm-hmm. email, mm-hmm. text message spam. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something happened to me. And I think it was just by the grace, my luck in being able to buy a house uh-huh. I am now because I own a house. I am some sort of. I'm in like a, I'm a prospect to right. all of sell these. It. All yeah. You just bought a house. <laughs> you should sell it. What right if you now. sold the house? You know what you should think about, sir. You should think about selling that house that yeah. you just got or you're living yeah. in. Or yeah. um, it is just like I don't see the thing that's really weird though is because like the margins are either terrible yeah. or zero or negative right, yeah. or they're like incredible. And I just having humans on call or like doing manual work to reach out to me yeah. to, to be like, hi, sir, is your, <laughs> your address this? And is this home? Uh-huh. We have, uh, you have <laughs> something to the effect of, you have indicated that you're interested in selling your house, which I think the only indication is, is that I own the, I, right, I own right. the house. And I just, I'm so, I'm ready for all of this to be done and this, this thing, whole will, phase. thing to collapse. Would but, you ever, is there like a price they could offer that would cause you to sell your house? Every time they call me, it yeah. goes up 
by mm-hmm. another ten thousand dollars. <laughs> I just am like, nah, give me the give me the price right now. Um, but like with iBuyers, there yeah. it seems like it's it could be such a nice idea to go in and be like, hey, this neighborhood could really use yeah uh, some investment into it. Yeah, mm-hmm. let's go take all of these houses. Um, I, I don't know. This is, seems horrible, but it's like, oh, there you can use investment and technology probably in a nice, empathetic, like <laughs> nice way to increase housing uh, chances for people. But maybe. maybe that maybe that is too too silly to think about um yeah i i don't know about that one i think you know both of us live in central city areas which are just going to have increasing home prices uh for as long as we can imagine and i definitely see it around me these sort of cash for homes people trying to buy people out and there's nowhere for them to go you know i mean there is nowhere to go you're gonna have to move to the suburbs basically yeah, it's like, oh, I could sell my house and then move into a smaller house. Well, I mean, you probably, house yeah, you could a, move into a different house, arguably a bigger house. You know, I can say in my neighborhood, if people were to sell their houses, but they literally would have to move out of town in order to buy those yeah. houses. Cause yeah, you I can't, guess that's the case. Yeah. And, and that's it. And I, I think you're kind of in a, a similar, a similar yeah. area. Also, to be clear, I'm not really complaining about people wanting to well people hate it man people it's, can't it's stand like non-stop yeah people there's uh there's actually a house that's getting redone about a block away from me and they have a huge sign in front of their house which has an expletive on the sign about how the house is not for sale um, people find it obnoxious. Personally, I find it fascinating to know what someone is willing to offer me for my home. And I guess I have plenty of time on my hands. So <laughs> you know, like, just yeah. tell me I've done like a walkthrough with the open door people of my house. Uh, uh-huh. So I can get an estimate from them. How do they detect like different smells? And <laughs> they're like, they're like, and so is that a pit bull that I hear barking in the background? Yeah. 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 What, how would you describe the amount of cat feces in your lawn? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. They're not, the algorithm doesn't know that right. like, um, you know, that drain in the basement, how often does it burp? <laughs> yeah. The algorithm includes, you know, local feral cat populations. Yeah. That we could, we could really affect that model. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening, of course, to Valley of Dreams. I am Daniel, joined here, as always, by Phil. We look forward to seeing you next time.